While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. try this one on you i have a joke i have a funny i have a funny observational joke why how why come there's all-purpose flour but there's also like bread flour and cake flour but like it shouldn't that all-purpose flour be good for all purposes it seems like we can barely (laughs) use all-purpose flour for anything we need to buy this super specialized like bleached wheat flour or something did you ever notice <laughs> did you ever notice about flour <laughs> welcome to overdue this is a <laughs> podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew i'm still still working the kinks out of that one I'm trying new material on the road so i think it's probably like you could make whatever you wanted with that flour mm-hmm. but it might not be as good as it's just like it's it's Cake the jack flour. of all trades, master of none flower. Yeah, and that, that's the too long. Flower. They they were billing it as jack of all trades, master of none flower, and they ran out of space on the bag, so they called it all purpose flower. <laughs> that's skillful branding. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> also, it, the phrase master of none tested poorly, so they <laughs> they decided not to use it. I don't really have a good follow-up to your no, I think, joke. Don't Should you, we just... don't you have any funny observations? Have you have you noticed anything lately? Anything that's just funny? It's like oh. the little the little things we experience every day. I don't think so. I did my taxes on Saturday. Oh, I, I did all my taxes on Saturday. There was a box where I had to say I wasn't getting any farm income, and it made me really sad. I wanted some farm Do income. Do you want farm income? Maybe you should make some flour. Solved it. Tied it all up. <laughs> books. Let's talk about books. So if this is your first episode, we don't talk about flour the whole time. Uh, we talk... Yeah, someone, some knucklehead recommended this podcast to you. And you're walking down the street to work. You're walking on ice. If you're on the East Coast, it's all icy sidewalks. And you're like, well, God. I was expecting some good book learning. And these guys are talking about flour. Good job, my friend. Farming come? And then I turned it off. <laughs> so thanks thanks chuck and then while i was your tur- podcast recommendation and then while i was turning it off i like slipped on the ice and fell down and then broke my phone so this podcast broke my phone thanks chuck good job chuck good job chuck now chuck if you're still listening we should probably talk about what book we read this week yeah right what book did you read this week <laughs> thanks andrew i read <laughs> their it. eyes were watching god by zora neil hurston uh, okay. Which has been on our list since like strangers started listening. There was a period of time at the beginning of the show where most of the people listening we could name, um, and we <laughs> we've we can or still we were like related to or yeah something. yeah. Uh, we've since thankfully uh, and graciously grown a lot since then, and so we've gotten a lot of recommendations. And this is one that keeps coming up. And after we did. Uh, the last book that I read for the show was Fifty Shades Darker. Okay. <laughs> and I decided I wanted to 
to treat myself to something from the canon of American literature um, as opposed to whatever thing that was. Okay. And I settled on this one. All right. So tell me what you can about Zora Neale Hurston. So she was a writer in the early 20th century. Uh, she was born in 1891, and she was part of the Harlem Renaissance. And it was actually really useful for me to go through the research on this one and realize how, unfortunately, kind of unknowledged I am about that period of time. So okay. unknowledged that I made up a word about it. Yeah, you don't even know how to convey how unknowledged you are. Uh, yeah. Um so dis disknowledged. <laughs> Just wait a second. Um, so she uh, grew up. Well, she was born in Alabama, and she grew up in Eatonville, Florida, which is where some of this book takes place. Mm-hmm. It's a rural community, rural community near Orlando, uh, that was one of the nations, if not the nation, if not the nation's first. Uh, I cannot talk today. It's yeah, good. man, you're doing real bad. Uh, that was the an incorporated black township all black um and that was the the first one or one of the first ones after um the civil war so this was like 1887 yes uh, and it was named it, of course it was named after one of the white guys <laughs> who sold them the land so well good. yeah good job white people good job um and her father was a baptist preacher there who was the mayor for a period of time uh her mother died when she was 13 and her father remarried rather quickly and there's some uh, there was some scuttlebutt that he may have been actually seeing that woman before his wife passed away mm-hmm. and then it kind of they stopped supporting her and sent her off to a boarding school and then stopped paying the tuition so she got expelled uh, so Hurston went on to become like a maid touring with some Gilbert and Sullivan troop or something <laughs> uh, which is interesting it's hard to believe anyone could make enough money at that game to yeah. <laughs> To yeah. fund a whole troop, you know. Well, and then to fund, and then to fund people who work for that troop, like that in and of itself is surprising. But it was a different time, I guess, before TV. So who knows? Gilbert uh, and the... Sullivan were in higher demand than I think they are now. <laughs> That's yes, very much so. Uh, she then wound up in Baltimore in her twenties, um, and actually started lying about her age by about a decade so that she could finish her high school education. That's actually kind of my favorite thing. When I when I was reading about her is that she started lying about her age so she could get free high school and then she graduated with her um, with her bachelor's in like 1928 when she was 30 something and everyone just thought that she was still 10 years younger. It was pretty see great. like in that situation I've got to think that whoever it was who was admitting her like you got to know right maybe maybe I don't know by all accounts she was. Uh... A good-featured lady who could pass for at least five years younger than herself. All right. That's fine. So um, she later graduated from Bar- uh, Barnard College after studying at one or two other places and uh, also studied at Columbia where she studied anthropology. Uh, and then that was kind of when she fell in with the Harlem Renaissance crowd in the late 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, her big um, kind of... Uh, coming out sounds wrong but like the big moment of recognition for her her came, breakout her breakout moment Damn, yeah. oh, thanks thanks that's why you're here i'm uh, just gonna be a thesaurus for you yes. to help you string no sentences not together. a thesaurus a literal dictionary so i can actually talk um 
1925, a short story of hers and a play uh, were awarded second place prizes by Opportunity Magazine, um, which was uh, kind of the one of the best ways for writers of that era to to get read. Um, and she came into the party where she was awarded the prize, and she just yelled the name of her winning play, which was Color Struck. <laughs> <laughs> there's this awesome like essay on the Zora Neale Hurston website that kind of recounts this and she just walked into a room full of people and at that time she was still a student in college I think uh, just yelled the name of her second prize play <laughs> uh, and everyone obviously remembered who she was she apparently was not a, a big drinker but one of the quotes about her from a contemporary is that you know she was always the life of the party wherever she was sure um, if you ever win second place in anything, <laughs> I think you should do a tribute to Zora Neale Hurston. Okay. Uh, she was awarded. Shout whatever it is that you won the award for. Okay. Uh, she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Um, she ended up doing a lot of anthropological research in northern Florida uh, on lumber camps. And one of her specific topics was uh, sexual exploitation of black women. Um kind of exploration of what is called paramour rights, where white uh, men were taking advantage of black women and forcing them to have their kids and then kind of just saying, well, this is my land and this is, you work for me, so I'm going to do whatever I want with you. Yeah. Um, And she ended up covering the Ruby McCullum trial, which is a woman who murdered such a man. um, And she tried to do like serial coverage of it, like over three months or so, but... There was like a payment agreement that didn't happen and then her research got passed on to another guy. Um, but she was kind of an advocate for this type of, you know, bringing this stuff to the fore. And you, you can see some of the strain, similar strains in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, one of the other things I kind of want to talk about is like her place in the Harlem Renaissance. I think it's important because you had this period of time where what and this is something I had not considered, Andrew, uh, but around World War One, European immigration kind of stopped mm-hmm. because of World War One. Countries full, you know. Well, Everybody not even that. It was all those countries Everybody were busy. All those countries were busy, right. uh, and so you have the first and second generation of free uh, Black Americans who need work and need places to go, and so. Th- Lots of them ended up settling in New York City, where there was this, you know, vast industrial complex and the need for labor for World War One, uh, and then this kind of emergence of a black middle class, you know, grew, emerged, um, and you had like things like uh, Back to Africa movements, and you had W. E. B. Du Bois talking about the Talented Tenth that would kind of uplift the uh, the the black man in America or woman. Um, and kind of like fight Jim Crow by producing art and and thus art kind of became political in a way. Right. Uh, so she was falling in with folks like Langston Hughes and um, James Baldwin and Claude McKay. And then the other artists that were, you know, musicians are Fats Waller and Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. Um, and then a couple other folks whose, you know, names I'm ashamed to say I didn't recognize. Uh, but one of the things that I found most interesting about this is that she didn't seem to fit into all of the progress- progressivism of the era. She was actually kind of, this book in particular was critiqued uh, for not being political enough. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's one of the things that I that I thought was the most interesting when I was reading about her is that um, especially with her later works, she was kind of criticized by members of the Harlem Renaissance for like not sufficiently forwarding the cause in yeah. her work. Mm hmm. And it's um, it's one of the reasons why after her death in um, 60, 1960, yeah, she kind of fell into obscurity for a while. Like there was a time when she was not canonized as she kind of has been. Now she was actually buried in an unmarked grave that um, was only marked 13 years later when uh, Alice Walker and Charlotte Hunt found an unmarked grave in the general vicinity of where she was supposed to be buried and decided that it was hers. Um, and then Alice Alice Walker's pretty much, I don't know if she was single-handedly responsible for restoring her to the place in the canon where she is now, but I think she played a pretty big role in it. But um, but yeah, her poli- her politics were interesting. She was kind of social liberal, um, and for everything else, she was like conservative to libertarian. Um, particularly, she thought that uh, FDR's New Deal made black people too dependent on the government and that yeah. it was a bad thing because of that yeah she seemed to have an innate um respect for uh you know coming out of eatonville i imagine right this sense that black people could govern themselves and if that was the thing that needed to happen then they were certainly capable of it mm-hmm. uh rather than you know turning to the already existing government that had been a government that allowed slavery uh, and saying, like, help us out. Uh, the other thing that I saw, I don't know if you read this, Andrew, that she expressed dissent from, uh, like, Brown v. Board of Education. Like, she did not, she thought separate but equal might have worked. Um, because- yeah, there there are a couple things in her, you know, in her life that are kind of controversial or I guess, like, maybe you'd say, like, wrong side of history or something like yeah, that. Maybe. I don't I don't know if you want to bust that stuff out, but, like, she departed from conventional wisdom on a couple different points. That was one, and then um, there are actually three works of hers that, um, that I guess, are confirmed to have been plagiarized, at least in part. Oh, yeah, her essays, her anthropological essays. Yeah, at least the yeah. two of those two of those three were on the subject of voodoo in particular, which is a subject she's received some criticism for because I think her her writings misrepresented or oversimplified things yeah. that were actually happening and it made people upset, I guess. So, you know, she's canonized but she's not without blemishes. Well, and it's interesting too is that like because she kind of fell into obscurity, there's room for those blemishes to kind of die away a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the reasons that we didn't talk about this a few minutes ago, but when Alice Walker kind of found her again, right, the other writers that were being celebrated at the time and Walker included are, you know, Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou. And you are seeing this... <sighs> this movement in African-American literature to talk about just the experience rather than the struggle, if that makes sense. Not the political struggle, but just the struggle to live. Um, And so I think that's where she fell out with the Harlem Renaissance folks um, because her stuff was not cataloging. There's only like two or three moments in Their Eyes Are Watching God, and we'll talk about them, that are dealing with 
you know, direct racism of any kind. Mm-hmm. It's much more just about people living. And obviously their circumstances are in a particular context, but that's definitely not what she set out to write that novel about. Right, yeah. Uh, and I guess the the last thing, unless you have any unless you have anything else. No, go ahead. Um the last thing that I thought was interesting that I feel like authors are always trying to do this, but um her papers were supposed to be burnt when she died. And then some friend who happened to be walking by at the time like ran in and saved them. And I'm like what have we what have we won? What have we lost because somebody wasn't in the right place at the right time? <laughs> And two, authors, come on, stop telling people to burn all your stuff. You you don't care anymore. Just let us just let us rifle through it, and and your estate can publish stuff posthumously. And well, yeah. And what have we gotten from ignoring like dead authors' wishes? Like we read an I read an O'Neill play several months ago. His most respected play was published, uh, you know, after he died and was performed against his wishes. Mm-hmm. And it's largely the thing that everyone thinks is, you know, why he's part of the theatrical canon. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to, if you're out there and you're an author and you're listening to this podcast, thanks. But if you're like <laughs> creating world changing work, may I beseech you to not like have a flaming trash can next to your deathbed where you're right, just like just tossing like- all your stuff? <laughs> Maybe keep the matches and the manuscripts in different drawers in your desk from now on. And that seems like a good move. And everyone who's friends with famous writers, it is n- now is the time to go find all their hidden stuff and just like draw a treasure map for yourself. So if they get sick, you go to their house, butane lighters, matches, sparklers, I don't care what it is. You get it, you get rid of it. Yeah, to- yeah, Steve, we'll totally do all that stuff you wanted to do before you die. I just got to go to your house real quick and, like, laminate a bunch of your stuff. <laughs> yeah, lam- laminating stuff protects it from anything. <laughs> Nothing that's laminated has ever been destroyed. I did really well in chemistry, okay? I did really well in that class. All right, Walter White, do you want to move <laughs> on to something else now? <laughs> yeah, uh, Andrew, before we move on to the book itself, did you want to take a quick break and we'll talk about... Uh, some of the folks who've been supporting the show through Patreon. Uh, yeah, Craig, I would like to talk about that. Um, two weeks ago with episode 100, we launched a Patreon project. For the, those of you who aren't familiar with what Patreon is, it's uh, basically a service that allows people who enjoy, um, you know, people who enjoy like our work or anyone else's work can choose to pay them directly for that work. It's it's kind of like a pledge or a donation system. People sign up to uh, donate a specific amount of money per month, and we have a few different you know tiers that you can donate at, and you can get some different things depending on how much how much you give. But um, that helps defray our hosting costs and our our book buying costs. And um, we've already had a couple talks about stuff we can do in the future like as we scale up like right now it took us only a few days to get past our first goal which was to be totally self-sufficient which we are like the the site is paid for all the books are paid for like it's just it's so amazing and great that 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 happened so quickly we couldn't be more thankful so the next step for us which is kind of we don't 
we're we set this one a little high because we're not sure if it's if even we're gonna be able to do it but We're aspirational uh, if, that's good if yeah if the demand shows up and people want to support the show we'll be churning out an extra episode a month uh and hopefully allowing us to cover kind of even more books that have been suggested and maybe even some stuff that we wouldn't otherwise have time to cover uh, so we've got more milestones on, on patreon.com slash overdue pod. Head over there, check out the reward tiers to see what you can claim if you support us at a certain level. Uh, and thanks already to the generous people who have pledged their support to overdue moving forward. Yeah. And we actually, if you pledge $5 or more per month, um, we take listener suggestions a lot because, you know, we don't always have a book that's sitting on the top of our pile that's ready. But um, for people who pledge $5 or more per month, then the book that you suggest, we're going to bump up to the top of the queue. So the uh, book that I'm reading next week, which is uh, Foundation by Isaac Asimov, was actually recommended by Ryan, one of the one of the generous people who is donating to our show Thanks, at, Ryan. That, at that tier. And then we've got We've got three or four other people, I think, who who are also in there, and and we're just kind of putting their books on the list in the order that they are received. But <laughs> yeah, if there's something you want us to read that you that you haven't that that we just are not responding to for whatever reason, <laughs> that's the that's the quickest and easiest way to to make us read something. I think. Yeah. So now that we've sufficiently bribed you, let's get yes. on with the show. Patreon.com/slash/overduepod. Thank you very much. That's it. Okay, so their eyes were watching God. <clears throat> were they? Yes, they were. <laughs> okay. Uh, where to start with this one? I mean, it's a big old book. It's not, you know, a massive tome or anything, but there's a lot going on. It covers a long part of a woman's life, and that woman is Janie Crawford. So Janie Crawford is our protagonist, and... She is second generation free. Her grandmother was a slave and uh, had a child by her owner, uh, who was Janie's mom, Leafy. And then Leafy had a troubled childhood, uh, got pregnant when she was 16. Unfortunately, she was raped um, and then ran off with another person, uh, kind of fleeing that event. And Janie never saw her ever again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Janie's grandmother, Nanny, has uh, just kind of like pinned all of her hopes and dreams on Janie. Uh, and this is told via flashback. Uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because I actually really love the way that this book opens. Mm-hmm. With, so is it like a, is it like a frame narrative or, yeah. or what's, what's going on? It's a very light frame narrative. Uh, the book opens with, and I'll come back to the, to the opening lines a little later on, but it opens with Janie walking into Eatonville having been gone for several years and everyone in town knows who she is. You, the reader don't know who she is yet. Um, it's just, you know, Herson's only referred to her as a she. It's like a, it's kind of like when a movie follows someone from behind for like a few minutes and you can clearly tell that they're important, but you can't even see their face. Like you don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really effective way of kind of investing you in that character. And they're all talking about her and trying to figure out what she's been up to. And her best friend, Phoebe is, you know, saying that the reason she doesn't talk to them is because she just knows that all they want to do is get their noses in her business. Uh, and then Janie goes to her house and sits down and invites Phoebe to sit down with her. And then Phoebe's like, what's going on? And Janie says, well, let me start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you go back and you find out that 
um, Janie was basically, you know, kind of raised as a little girl, friendly with uh, this white family that her grandmother worked for. Didn't even really realize that she was black until she like saw a picture of herself. Um, she's fair skinned, uh, and that's kind of made important throughout the rest of the book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nanny's goal for her is to get her married to a man who will take care of her, uh, and that will bring her status that Nanny never had in her life. Okay. Uh, and Janie's not sure that that's going to work. She doesn't really seem to understand why that's so important. Um, there's this pretty pivotal scene when she's like 16. She sees a tree, a pear tree, uh, get pollinated by like bees and insects. And she sees this as like nature harmoniously existing, like two things existing and creating life. And like this is the epitome of, you know, this is nature's version of love, right? Uh, and she thinks that that should be what love is even for people like in life not you know bees having sex with trees but she sees a beauty in it and kind of attaches she has this idealized version of what love is going to be you look skeptical yeah well just know if if you're going to take that literally it's like the idealized version is that like a man comes by maybe he's in a bee costume i don't know (laughs) and he impregnates you and then he moves on to the next lady Okay. No. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just saying that I don't I don't know if I follow the the logic that you're laying out. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Let me see if I can. Okay. I'm going to read this to you so you can you can hear it through. All right. So I'm going to try Kirsten's and forget about words. the the man in the bee costume that right. I've forget that I've constructed. That. Okay. She was stretched on her back beneath the pear tree, soaking in the alto chant of the visiting bees, the gold of the sun, and the panting breath of the breeze when the inaudible voice of it all came to her. She saw a dust-bearing bee sink into the sanctum of a bloom, the thousand sister calyxes arched to meet the love embrace, and the ecstatic shiver of the tree from root to tiniest branch, creaming in every blossom and frothing with delight. So this was a marriage— she had been summoned to behold a revelation. Then Janie felt a pain remorseless sweet that left her limp and languid. Now, I had not caught on my previous read that she basically described a tree making an O-face. But, nonetheless, yeah, <laughs> nonetheless, she is seeing a harmony in nature that she aspires to throughout the rest of the book. Okay, sure. And that's the purpose of why she tells this part of the story to Phoebe. Because um, okay. Nanny's version of marriage is like, hey, this guy's going to take care of you and keep you safe. And at this point, Janie thinks that marriage is going to be husband and wife loving each other all the time. Mm-hmm. How naive. <laughs> right? So Nanny sets her up with this guy named Logan Killix, who's an older farmer, much older than her. It's a good name. It is a pretty good name, but he treats her like crap. Uh, He basically treats her like a pack mule on his farm. Uh, The marriage does not last very long. She has it with him, has a couple fights, and then a man named Joe Starks walks down the street, sweet sweet talks her for a little while, they start hanging out, and then they decide to run away and get married. (laughs) Done. (laughs) 
Well, I think Hurston herself only had a couple of relatively brief marriages, right? Correct. Uh, she was married two or three times. The longest one was four years. I know one only lasted like seven months or so. Yeah. And she had a long uh, affair or relationship. It's not affair. I think she was not married at the time. A relationship with a guy named Percival Punter, who seems to be the basis for the guy that uh, Janie ends up with after Joe Stark's spoiler. Okay. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, All right. So, um, like, so we only have an hour on this show, probably a little less. Yeah. Once you factor in, like, the amount of time we spend saying dumb stuff. <laughs> so what's, what's like, the crux of this book? Is it, like, is it the characters? Is it what happens? Is it how the story is told? Like, what's the, what's the most important thing that you think draws people to this book? Like, what's the reason why it's in the literary canon? Great. Two things, I think. The use of language and the types of language included in the book and Janie's arc through the three men that she marries. So okay. I'll, I'll kind of take a macro view on the plot. I'll pull the way out from where I was before. She mm-hmm. leaves Logan because that's terrible for her. She runs off with Joe. Joe and her move down to Eatonville where Hurston grew up. And he becomes like the first mayor of Eatonville and creates this town from nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she becomes a trophy wife and she, he won't let her be part of the society that she basically helped him create. Right. Uh, and again, um, Hurston's father was the mayor of Eatonville for a while. So there you go. Read into that what you will. Um, she's trying to find her voice. There's this pivotal moment. Well, this will tie back to language in a second. Pivotal moment where, you know, she delivers this kind of rousing speech in support of Joe and he shuts her down because he doesn't want her to actually have her own voice in the town. He won't let her participate in like people sitting on the stoop razzing each other. Right. The dozens, as it's called. Just the basis for Yo Mama jokes. I don't know if you knew that, Andrew. I did not, but now I do. Yeah, the dozens. Playing the dozens. Um, <laughs> and then Why the dozens? Like I don't, you just have to come I, up with a dozen jokes? Or? I don't pretend to know. I don't okay. I looked I've looked it up many a time. Um I was happy to see it in this book, but I don't know what where the dozens come from. If a listener okay. out there knows, please write in. Uh so her relationship with Joe goes sour. They she kind of emasculates him in front of everyone after he starts calling her old um even though he's older than her he starts kind of ragging on her appearance which is otherwise to everyone else in the world's opinion and probably his own really wonderful um (laughs) and she really calls him out in front of everyone to the point where someone says that she's playing the dozens with him and he's really you know there's more than egg on his face you know he's pretty well humiliated and he beats her and then their relationship never recovers he ends up dying from an illness and she lives as kind of this independent woman in town for a little while uh, before meeting up with a guy named Tea Cake. Um, I believe his name is Virgible Wood. Uh, I've, but his name is Tea Cake. Okay. That's my favorite Beatles song. <laughs> Stop it. Uh, and everyone's giving her crap for hooking up with Tea Cake. And what the relationship with Tea Cake is all about is equality. Uh, it doesn't seem like it. It's There's plenty of times throughout their relationship where uh, he seems like he's getting one over on her or taking advantage of her. But parallel to that, he is also teaching her to shoot. 
he's letting her uh, kind of engage with his friends and hang out with all of the people that he ends up hanging out with. He's this kind of really social animal. So they end up running off to Jacksonville, and then later the Everglades, they get married. And the whole time, there's this narrative. She says he's teaching her the maiden language again, and then she ends up participating in this kind of storytelling exercise that they tend to spend their nights doing um, where people hang out on the porch and pass the time Uh, and she can tell tall stories with everyone else and they continue to fight and they go through the same hardships together uh, but ultimately she finds the harmony that she aspired to in nature with him so it sounds like Okay, the first relationship is really overtly crappy and terrible. Yes. The second relationship becomes that way, but only after... It's like one of those relationships where you get to know the person like over time, and then eventually you get down to like the core of them, and you figure out that they're just putting on an axe yeah. the whole time, or like putting on appearances. I don't know. Yeah, well, and the the tricky thing with her relationship with Joe or Jody as he as she sometimes calls him is that he has set her up to be this kind of independent spectacular woman, but then he won't let her be. Well, but then he won't let her mingle with the people he is he is trying to lead. He doesn't he doesn't want to take her down off of the pedestal and actually let her be a human. Um so her independence is not actual independence, if that makes oh, okay. sense. Like, she has it better off than anyone else in Eatonville, and yet he keeps her confined to the store that he started uh, working in the store and not engaging in anything else. There's this whole, like, you would you would really like this section, Andrew, in the middle where they're making fun of this guy's crappy mule. Like, they tell tall <laughs> stories about this guy's mule, like, going around right. town and, like, eating people's coffee and stuff. And then, do you have any mule stories that you can read me? Or, uh, or yeah, that... let me pull it up while I riff for a second. All right, cool. Um, and then, while the when the mule dies, she wants to go be at the weird like funeral that they're throwing for the mule, but he won't let her, <laughs> and she's kind of upset about that. And then the thing that happens is they all just like mock the mule more. They tell like more tall tales mm-hmm. as part of its uh, eulogy. So here's you gotta go to the mule funeral though, man. That's like the social event of the season. So here's some of the stories of Matt Bonner's mule. Uh, he pushed open Lindsay's kitchen door and slept in the place one night and fought until they made coffee for his breakfast. He st- <laughs> he stuck his head in the Pearson's window while the family was at the table, and Mrs. Pearson mistook him for Reverend Pearson and handed him a plate. <laughs> <laughs> he ran Mrs. Tully off of the croquet ground for having such an ugly shape. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't sound like they're telling bad stuff about the mule so much as they're like insulting people using the mule as good. like as an intermediary. You're right. It keeps going. Uh, he ran and caught up with Becky Anderson on the way to Maitland so as to keep his head out of the sun and under her umbrella. He got tired of listening to Red to Redmond's long-winded prayer and went inside the Baptist church and broke up the meeting. He did everything but let himself be bridled and visit Matt Bonner, his own. <laughs> so, like, there's this sense that people are playing with language. There's a, there's a quote that I don't have at the tip of my tongue, so I won't butcher it. But that language is both the weapon and the tool that everyone in this walk of life has to keep themselves alive and defend themselves. And... 
uh, Jody will not let Janie have it, basically. Okay. Uh, so then Tea Cake, who I, I have plenty of misgivings about Tea Cake. Yeah, because it, it sounds like from what you've said, the, the, the relationship is by no means perfect, but he seems more willing to let her be her. Yes. And so she's willing to overlook some stuff. Yeah. Like to to get that because that's the thing that neither of her other husbands have really afforded her. Yeah, and he does love her implicitly, but it doesn't come without bad stuff happening. Like when they run away to get married, she brings secret, you know, a secret stash of cash just in case, you know, everyone's concerns are true and he's just trying to take advantage of her. And then she wakes up and the cash is gone. And what did he do? He went off and gambled it. But then he gets it back the next day. Like it's TK, come on. TK has a system. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he does. He actually, he runs like a real, he goes and plays a real great craps game. But then he like gets stabbed. It's really, TK seems like a lot to handle. Uh, Wait, why does he get stabbed? Because he got in a fight after playing dice. After he took everybody's money. All right. But he still got the money because Tea Cake always wins, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then they and then there's this really interesting chapter that starts with the line, um, Janie learned what it felt like to be jealous. That's the beginning of a chapter, Andrew, which is, I don't know, to me, I read it. I was like, hey, yes. It's just like such a perfect thesis statement for a story. Mm-hmm. Um, because then you watch as Tea Cake ends up kind of being really playful with this girl who's also picking beans with them in the Everglades, and then that goes down poorly, and then Tea Cake reciprocates with jealousy at Janie, and so they kind of learn this bad part of relationships together. Uh, and then, of course, it ends up with them like fighting until they have sex, because um, that's just what happens. Like you do. Yeah. Uh, and then they end up weathering... Yeah, I can go on the plot, but I don't need to do that. Um the thing is, is that their relationship is never without strife, but it is always, there's always a strong foundation underneath it. Um, sure. So that even when it goes in the worst possible place imaginable, um, she still loves him and he was still the one for her. What's the worst place imaginable for them? Uh, do you want me to tell you the end of the book? I mean, that's that's what we're here for. Okay, so... Take your headphones out take... if you guys are like 80% of the way through this <laughs> and you want to finish. So this hurricane, the 1928 Okeechobee Lake Hurricane strikes. And this is like a real event that happened. It's actually the second deadliest hurricane in American history. Did you know that, Yikes. Andrew? I did not. What's the first deadliest? Uh, the Katrina? 1900 Galveston hurricane. Whoa, where's Katrina on the list? Uh, Probably between three and five. I think it was just because we just did not have a system at all okay yeah i guess katrina probably caused more property damage than it did yeah Um, damage anyway i don't go on with your story um so while this hurricane is happening uh janie gets blown into a river and ends up having to like hold onto a cow as a life raft and there's a rabid dog on the cow uh (laughs) and then it's trying to bite her and tea cake jumps into the river to save her and then it bites tea cake in the face they make it safe and they you know they go about their lives and then uh a month later, like, Tea Cake goes rabid and kind of goes a little insane and is sick. And as she's trying to help him, he tries to kill her. Uh, and so she has to kill him. And then, Oh, jeez. Yeah. And then she... Man, this goes from, like, <laughs> Life of Pi to Old Yeller yeah. like, real quick. Uh, and then she, you know, has to stand trial for it um, and is exonerated. And then... 
you know, buries him and walks back to Eatonville. And that's where you are at the beginning of the story. Man. Yeah. So it's, it's an, it's just, some adventures. I was like, I was up the other night just kind of doing whatever. And I was like, oh, I should keep reading the book, make sure I finish it. And I was just, I read it for like an, an hour and a half. Cause I started, we were at the beginning of the Everglades section. I was like, well, I guess we're going to keep going. And then the book just didn't stop. It was pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. So, um, it's, I mean, it sounds like she's defined, Janie's defined mostly by her relationship to all the men that she's with, I guess. As she's struggling for an ability to define herself. And that's ultimately why I guess Tea Cake is the one for her because he does allow her her own personality and kind of self worth, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, like there's even a point where they're in the Everglades picking beans or that's his profession in the Everglades. And on one level, cause he doesn't want her to be alone and maybe be like stepping out on him on another level because he just really likes her and wants her around. He has her start coming out and working in the glades with him. And she doesn't like, she's totally happy to like, she mm. can work for herself and live her life. And then, then when they go home, instead of her having dinner ready for him, she'll he'll help her make it make dinner it's like it sounds so simple um but in the context of how she's been treated it's momentous you know how she's been treated and like what time in american history it is i think well yeah and and contrasting it with the middle section of the book where she's this wealthy woman in a small community but feels completely disconnected from that community entirely and isn't allowed to connect with that community. Um, she'd rather be in what the what they call the muck of the Everglades, like hanging out with people and going and they do kind of when we talked about the voodoo stuff earlier, they do go and like watch some voodoo dance stuff. It's a very small part of the book, but um, it's worth mentioning given the other stuff we talked about for Hurston. Okay. Um, so yeah, I I think it's. <sighs> When we were talking earlier about Hurston's kind of libertarian streak, uh, there's something very proto-feminist about uh, Janie's journey, but also I could see people finding it problematic because it is her defined by these relationships, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, We've talked about that before with, with other books of female leads dealing, you know, going from relationship to relationship. Um, it's and it's interesting because it's not I don't know like I said before race exists in the book but it is certainly not the primary focus of right. it's more of a backdrop than it is an actual like plot point if that makes sense yeah there was one there was one question we got actually on Twitter because you you yeah. put out a question just asking people if they had anything that they wanted us to talk about and uh, books on the metro asked us about um, the book being like a showcase of rich, powerful black people mm-hmm. at the time. Like it sounds like through Janie's second husband, you get a view into that. Maybe like, do you have any, like, do you have any thoughts on that particular aspect of the book? Yeah. There's two, there's two parts of that that are at play when he sets up the town. Um, there's this feeling of like, we don't know how to run a town. I guess we need a store. Like he's kind of like the answer man for a period of time. And 
when he's kind of losing power and people are wondering whether or not he's the best guy, which ultimately doesn't get called into question until he, until Janie's like kind of puts him down in front of everyone. There's this section uh, where Hurston says that they didn't speak up because they, you know, didn't know what they would say. Uh, he was in charge of them because they bowed down to him and they bowed down to him because he was in charge of them. Um, so there's this sense of like not even knowing what to do with someone of a, of a higher class than you other than just like let them rule you. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. Um, and then the flip side is this character that they meet in the Everglades named Miss, Mrs. Turner who is mixed race, um, like lighter, you know, a lighter skinned black woman, not as light as Janie, who really kind of reveres Janie for being as part white as she is. And she just spends about four or five pages putting down black people um, and how terrible they are and how ignorant they are. And wouldn't it just be better if uh, we could be accepted by white people so we could leave all this behind? Um and we, I've remember when we were when I read uh, a lesson before dying. There was some element, elements of this kind of internal racial strife there, but this seems pretty interesting given the context of the Harlem Renaissance. You know, of this idea of like, how are we going to advance as a people, and what is the correct way to go? Is it this kind of aspirationism? Is it we strike our own path, which seems to be Hurston's take on it. Um, I don't know. It's, yeah. I don't know. You have any specific thoughts on? No, I'm just I'm just trying to get a feeling for for why people's response to this book is the way it is. I mean, it's it sounds compelling even as even as you've been laying it out. But do do you think it's just because it is an early example of that, like? It, that kind of lived experience literature yeah it's as opposed to like the the you know the the racial i don't know i don't what's the what's the word i want to use just like the civil rights movement and that kind of that kind of bigger thing well it's simultaneously bigger and for people not interested in works that are overtly political it feels more universal than something like that right not to okay. not to besmirch or uh box in more political work from that era uh but i think when walker you know put forth hurston as if like why did we forget about this woman um i think that's where literature is going and i think literature seems to be interested in in that in general a bit more like you don't no one's talking about the latest like progressive novel you know what i mean like that people don't pick up novels when they're like in the streets um and not that that's necessarily a thing that they were doing before but i think there's an aspiration to a quieter yet more universal thing going on um and some of that's in just is accomplished in the book by Hurston's wonderful language. I haven't done it as much justice on the on the show as I would have wanted, but it's probably going to take a it would take a whole lot of time to do. Um, I want to read the opening of the book for you, Andrew. If okay, that's okay, do that because I think this is it speaks to her non dialogue prose because she does write a lot of dialogue, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But this is the prose style of the book. Okay, 
Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. Uh, For some they come in with the tide, for others they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now, women forget all those things they don't want to remember, and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. There's this, like, I don't know, it's it's feels quasi-biblical, even though it's not. It feels very grand, even though the language is ultimately pretty simple. Um, and the imagery is really rich. And that's just... Yeah, definitely. It's 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 all about, like, expectations versus reality and, like, acting on expectations... Yeah. Even before you know that they're reality. I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And this um this idea of the horizon kind of plays out as a symbol and motif throughout the book. It, it's also mm-hmm. the closing of the book. Like she feels like she has reached her horizon and she pulls it in around herself. Um Yeah, I don't I don't know. I feel like we have access to Janie in a in a prose style that was probably not ahead of its time completely, but has stood the test of time, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, when she gets in the in one of her final fights with Joe, uh, with Joe Starks, there's a she hears like it's like she hears a noise inside of her, and she looks and sees that it's the picture of him that she carried in her heart that fell on the floor and was broken, and now it's gone forever. And it's like the way that Hurston just navigates into like a quote unquote literal emotional space in language like that is really impressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, But then what's controversial about the book, at least in its time, is that she wrote in a vernacular. Um, Like, all of the dialogue is, like, some of of these mornings and it won't be long, you going to wake up calling me and I'll be gone. Like, and... Yeah, and, and, and contemporary writers thought that that was like you know rooted in racist tradition and and was just offensive on on those grounds but um i i guess like more recent writers have come to recognize like the value of of preserving that well and that was her tradition right she was yeah she was an uh you know an anthropologist in some ways in well in many ways uh and i feel like there's an argument to be made for on her side of she was trying to accurately represent people of a time and place right yeah it doesn't it doesn't sound like something that was meant to be political no not in any way um yeah and then the you know if you're politically minded you're going to raise the point of like yes but by including it in your text you are propagating a thing that has been you know damaging in the past and how could you do that Uh, well i mean is is it is that part of the same debate as like whether we should censor like Huck Finn or yeah, I think so. Tom Sawyer or anything is just like, or even I think the most egregious example that I can think of that is the least likely to make people mad is uh, the book Good Night Moon. The original version had a picture of the illustrator where he was holding a cigarette and more recent runs of it have had a picture of him where the cigarette has been photoshopped. Oh, uh, come on. <laughs> Come yeah, on. I don't I don't know. I even I don't I don't know where I fall on that side of it. I think that that it's better to like let it be, like let it stand as 
as a record of like what life was like then or like what writing was like then. Yeah. But I can totally see the other side of it too. Like I'm coming at this as a, as a white guy who's 29. So I'm like key demo for everybody and everybody <laughs> wants to cater for me, cater to me. Well, and that was actually one of the interesting things in my, you know, Craig doesn't know anything about the Harlem Renaissance research that I did today. <laughs> uh, where the Great Depression like put a real clear stopping point on that era. And part of the reason why is that the reason the reason that it took off was interest from white audiences in mm-hmm. the music, in the literature. And it was the critique of that, you know, movement and uh, attempt of, you know, we can achieve more if we just like, we will use our art. We will use uh, what we can create to to put ourselves in a better position. Was that white interest in it was going to be and will always have been a fad. And then when it's gone, you won't be in any better place. Um, right. And unfortunately, I still think that type of appropriation or cultural tourism or whatever you want to call it still exists where we still there's no clear solution to that situation you know not not that there would ever be a real solution of any kind yeah um like how do you take interest in something without you know in something that isn't quote-unquote yours or when does something become yours or isn't yours you know yeah yeah like how, how do you look at it without putting it in this like glass case yeah, precisely. And treating it like a like a museum or a circus or something. Well, like I'll tell you right now, one of my favorite phrases in this book is get reconciled. And it's when someone is like saying something, they're going off the handle about something that they need to shut up about. Like they're clearly, you know, making an unfounded argument or kind of talking out their butt as it were. And <laughs> uh, that's a phrase that I like. So <laughs> and someone says to them, get reconciled. And then you'd like tell them why they need to shut up and get with it and i don't know if i'm allowed to use that i get you know what i mean probably not but probably not yeah i don't know but i can recognize i found it enjoyable and i you know i'd found it an an interesting turn of phrase and it's there's lots of those throughout this book that i really enjoyed um that are part of just a, a vernacular that i don't have access to so my argument becomes I'm very glad she did the book this way so that at least yeah. I encounter that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we should we should wrap up. And I know we did not cover anywhere near enough of this book. Uh, so if you have favorite parts of this book or, or you're reading it right now because you're listening to the show uh, and want to chime in, please uh, do so. Uh, so if you're reading it right this second, I'm I'm impressed. Okay, well, fair enough. You, <laughs> you multitasking mavericks out there. Mavericks. Mavericks. Whatever. Uh, if you have <laughs> thoughts, uh, you can email them in at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also tweet them to us. We did mention our Twitter earlier. It's twitter.com slash overduepod. And one of the best places to get a hold of us is facebook.com slash overduepod. I want to give a quick thanks to folks who use social media to reach out to us this week. Uh, Jillian, Amanda, Sean, Tracy, Tysophene, I'm getting to the Twitter names now. Tysophene, <laughs> Cinta Garcia, Duchess Cadbury, Jonathan, Robert, Books on the Metro, like Andrew said, Tracy, um, Nata sent in um, some Philip K. Dick uh, cover art that was super cool. Uh, Andrew, anyone else? Where else did people find us on the internet this week? 
Um, well, some people may have gone to our website at overduepodcast.com, which is a place where we have uh, RSS and iTunes and Stitcher links that you can use to subscribe to the show. Um, there are a couple people who left us reviews on iTunes this week, uh, Cancer Monkey Fur and Rhea Noel. The common theme in all of these reviews is that they like just listening to us goof around, which is which is good. I'm glad that people find that endearing and not insufferable. <laughs> Um, up on up on our website, we also have uh, Amazon links to the books that we have read and the ones that we're going to read. So uh, that's one way you can use to support the show if you are not interested in donating like on a continuing basis through our Patreon page. Um, Craig, anything else? I mean, yeah, do leave us reviews, ratings on iTunes and on Stitcher that helps us rise in the rankings and helps people find the show. Um, I think that's I it. I think that's the whole blurb. <laughs> Andrew, what are you reading next week again? You said it earlier. Yeah, like I, like I mentioned before, I'm reading Foundation by Isaac Asimov, which is the first book in what went on to become a series, which we might talk a little bit about, but it's going to be focused mostly on that that book itself. And uh, that was recommended by Ryan, who's one of our Patreon donors. Um, again, that's patreon.com slash pod. If you want to get on the short list, that's the way to do it. Great. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, thank you for your support, whether it's on social media or with cash money we appreciate it either way Uh, we will see you next week and until then try to be happy 